The cost of defence, terrorism in France, and social licence and policing. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Smith. In this week's episode, we hear from Leanne Close and Brendan Nicholson on the recent violence in France. How do we bring communities together? How do we make sure they're not divided and it's not an us and them issue? And John Coyne speaks to former Canadian Senator and Police Commissioner Vern White, continuing the conversation on social licence and policing during COVID-19. So I think if nothing else, now there's an opportunity for police organisations to say, have we been doing a really good job at engaging our community to ensure we're providing the service they've wanted versus the service we wanted to give them? But first, Michael Shoebridge and Marcus Hellier discuss Aspie's latest publication, The Cost of Defence, Part 2. The report breaks down defence spending as outlined in the recent budget announcements, and Marcus and Michael discuss the challenges of defence spending over the next year. Dr Hellier. Hello, Michael. It hasn't been long since Cost of Defence Part 1, after the government released the Defence Strategic Update and the accompanying force structure plan, but now we have the departmental budget uh, out of the the Treasurer's October budget, um, and there, there is some more to say. So first, do you want to give me uh, the headline number and then we can start to talk about some of the, the issues that, that pop out of this budget documentation because you're now uh, releasing the cost of defence part two. That's right. So we've done two uh, parts of the cost of defence this year. first part came out in August looking at the government's defence strategic update that mapped out the course of defence for the next 10 years and we've just uh, released part two which uh, focuses in on this year's budget, the 2021 budget, which sort of provides a little more detail around this year and the three years after that. And I guess the big picture is, is that uh, the budget itself does deliver the the funding that the government promised in the strategic update. And it's a pretty uh, generous funding line. So there's been a big increase this year, about three and a half billion more, which brings the defence budget up to about 42.7 billion dollars. I know everybody's really interested in the percentage of GDP issue. 2021 was the year that the government promised to hit 2% and uh, the budget actually does that quite easily. It actually has surged to 22.19%. That's partly due to coronavirus impacting GDP growth, but probably that number, the 42.7 would have hit 2% anyway. So we've actually surged past 2% and the trajectory over the next few years continues that. And in about the next three or four years, it could even hit about 2.4%. Well, I think your projection of 2.4% of GDP is against a pretty rosy economic recovery uh, that sees a resumption of 2.5% per annum growth in GDP. Uh, by the Australian economy fairly quickly. That's right. We've just defaulted to using the government's budget papers predictions for GDP for the next few years, and they are pretty optimistic. You know, whether that's right or wrong is not for me to say, but we've used uh, plug those numbers in. Now, you could say that uh, it is a longer-term risk for defence if uh, economic recovery stalls, and that gap between the actual funding line and a hypothetical 2% line gets bigger and bigger, potentially could hit 9 or $10 billion a year. 
that becomes quite an attractive target for governments who are looking to find money for other priorities. Yes, but I suppose the flip side of that is the government said our strategic environment requires this kind of investment. To me, though, the, the risk is one around delivery. And I think there's some interesting stuff in your analysis about the kind of delivery challenge, even in, say, the capital program for this next financial year and the next few financial years. So the lift required in that in that spend. Yeah, that's right. So even uh, all the way back to the 2016 white paper, it was pretty clear that the big winner inside the defence budget was the capital acquisition budget. The strategic update confirmed that. And again, it's been confirmed once again in the 2021 budget. So I mentioned there's a $3.5 billion increase this year. $3 billion of that goes into the defence capital budget. So what that essentially means is this year, defence has to spend 27% more than it did last year buying stuff. And you sort of go, if you look back over the last four or five years, defence has averaged about 5% growth a year. This year, it's got to hit 27% growth. I mean, that's so it's a going huge... to hit five it, times that amount of it's, annual growth. It's a huge year. ask, particularly when you look at global supply chains being impacted by COVID-19. It's going to be hard, I think, to ramp that up. Now, I know, you know, the government would love to spend a lot of that, you know, delivering an economic stimulus to regional Australia, but you know, I don't think they're going to get that money out the door. So there's always, you know, that use it or lose it risk. And I guess the, the bigger issue is that growth trajectory continues over the next 10 years. So defence is going to have to find a way very quickly to learn how to spend a lot more money. And Australian industry is going to have to absorb that money as well, because the government is pretty clear that it wants defence's acquisition budget to flow increasingly into local industry. Well, if you're going to spend about 60% of that capital investment domestically, that's a big lift in the amount of Australian industry spend because there aren't the big foreign military sales spends coming through. I think you make the point that JSF is going to keep spending about $2 billion per annum for the next few years, but that's really the last of the big FMS cases. So a lot of the rest of this is going to have to go on um, things that have a greater proportion of Australian spend. And that's a, that's a really big challenge for the And again, that's going to be hard because, yes, there are big programs coming down the line, the Future Submarine and Future Frigate programs, but you can't really accelerate them. You can't accelerate the build until you finish designing them. And we're still a couple of years away from the start of construction for the frigates and three to four years for the, the submarine. So it's hard to spend a lot more money there well, quickly. So that's going to be very challenging, I think. For yeah. Another bit of your report that, that you focused on was the sustainment side of the business. And there, I think there are some really big changes going on. You know, you've, you mentioned that um, for the last few years, Collins, the Collins submarine has been the single biggest uh, spender of sustainment money, about $690 million a year. But it's soon going to be overtaken by four other big programs. And I think they are interesting to people. So which in the future years, what are the top four sustainment spenders? Well, so if we if we look down the track, um, sustainment costs are growing up, and there's a number of 
drivers for that. One is the size of platforms, but the other is uh, complexity of platforms. And on top of that, got numbers of platforms. And we can see all of those things at work in Defence's big projects. So as we, some of these trend, these changes are a long way down the track. So we, if we look at submarines going from Collins to the future submarine, probably the future submarine, I think, will cost at least three times as much to operate as the Collins fleet and in, in, time, in current day dollars. And there'll be a time when both fleets are being operated. So submarine sustainment is going to be a yeah. large call on the budget. But, you know, but that's the sort of cost further down the track because yeah. we know we're not getting the first future submarine until 2034. Some of those costs are starting to impact now, though. So JSF, you know, it's We've always known JSF was going to cost a lot to operate. The first few years of data that we're seeing from Australian service are pretty high. So Defence was predicted about $34,000 of flying hour for JSF. It's So far, it's about $50,000. Uh, and that's that's about three times, four times as much as the classic Hornet that it's replacing. So that big sustainment cost increase is here already. The next one we're going to encounter will be armoured vehicles. So in the grand scheme of things, Defence's current armoured vehicles don't cost very much to operate at all. They never figure in the top 30 list. Uh, that's going to change with Boxer and with the future infantry fighting vehicle. And in fact, those uh, programs together could actually be more than Collins, which has traditionally been the biggest spender. So, so there's you're, some... you're forecasting about $700 million per annum to sustain the Army's armoured vehicles, which just to give an idea of proportion, that's about 10 times what it currently costs to sustain the Army's current armoured vehicles, isn't it? Yeah, so I mean, it's some pretty, you know, big hands kind of modelling, but it's using some of the data that Defence has commissioned and that's been released. So it's not a, it's a complete figment of my imagination. So these are just illustrations of rising sustainment costs that some are starting to hit now and some are going to get very big down the track. But I think if you look at the value for money side of things, uh, the acquisition cost combined with that very large year on year cost for sustaining these complex armoured vehicles. And then you look at the vulnerability of armoured vehicles to uh, drone strikes, for example, even in uh, a conflict with Armenia and Azerbaijan. You start thinking, is this value for money? Do you think that's something that could do with some more assessment? I think it's really time for the government to kind of put a pause on the future armoured vehicle project. Uh, one of the big bits of sort of news in the strategic update is that Defence's uh, estimate for the cost of acquiring the infantry fighting vehicles blew out by 80%. So it went from 10 to $15 billion to $18 to $27 billion. If we, if we pick the midpoint of that $18 to $27 billion, and take the number of vehicles that Defence wants, which is 450, it actually works out to about $50 million a vehicle. Oh. You know, that's a pretty huge amount of money. And as you say, you know, you turn on the TV and, you know, everywhere you see footage of armoured vehicles being destroyed by precision-guided weapons from, whether it's from drones, from aircraft, launched out of artillery, fired by infantrymen. There's a lot of threats out there. And, and it's, it's not $50 million of offensive firepower that's killing these vehicles. That, that's it's a hundred thousand dollar weapon. Yeah. You know, so the whole value for money calculus, I think, has has swung to the to the offense at the moment, mm. and I think 
you know, we may need to reconsider that. Aside from the issue of, you know, exactly where are we going to use them, how are we going to get them there, you know, I think um, I haven't seen a compelling business case for that investment. Mm. Now, there's two other things uh, that are just worth drawing out uh, that, that are in your report. One is the ICT program, you know, information communications and uh, telecommunication. The uh, broken backbone of defence that past defence secretaries have spoken about uh, has often related to defence's slow change in its information systems and there's not much transparency around that spend, is there? Remind me how big that spend is, maybe comparing it to another Commonwealth agency. Well, so if you take uh, Defence's ICT spend next year, it's, if we combine its acquisition spend, so buying new systems, and its sustainment spend, so operating its current systems and providing services across Defence, it's about $1.8 billion. That's actually bigger than the entire budget of some agencies like the AFP. Well, the AFP gets some pretty close scrutiny from government, but Defence's ICT spend gets no scrutiny whatsoever. There's no reporting against it except for a paragraph in the annual report, which generally tends to say it's not going that great. And so it's really hard to see uh, how well it's going and whether we're getting value for money for that. So and there's some real lumpiness in some of the spend, which makes you wonder about the underlying issues. Like I remember... Uh, just a few years ago, there was a collapse in the capital investment spend on defence ICT, but it was offset by an increase in sustaining all the legacy platforms that defence already had. And that could be a very interesting story in itself, couldn't it? Well, I guess all I can say is it's very hard to know what's going on there because the reporting is is so minimal. And so there is big shifts in, in spending and where the money goes. The bottom line is, is it's hard to know are we getting value for money there? So at least with a lot of the equipment projects, the bigger ones, you can see what the total approved budget is, how defence is tracking against spending that money, is it on schedule, you know, are we actually getting anything in return for it? In the ICT program, despite there being $1.8 billion, we see nothing whatsoever. And as you say, it is the backbone of defence. If the ICT doesn't work, all of the billion-dollar investment in sophisticated platforms is pretty much much nugatory because you can't stitch all of that together into a kind of integrated whole. So I think, uh, you know, the government and parliament really kind of need better information to be able to sort of track how defence is going in its ICT programs. Well, I think it's another enduring theme that the weird Aspie have had, and you certainly have with your assessment around cost of defence. It's that improved transparency tends to drive improved performance. Now, uh, we're pretty much out of time. I think we'll do, uh, we'll do something separate around some of the big shipbuilding programs in a frigate and submarine, because I think there's some interesting things to say there, and you've covered some of it in the publication itself. But the last thing I thought we could talk about uh, now is that interesting fifth arm of defence. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on how big is the Army, how big is the Navy, how big is the Air Force, What's happening to all those public servants? You know, are we sacking them for efficiency reasons or are we realising that it's an integrated organ organisation and employing a few more to deliver this really complex, big program of work to spend $575 billion? But the fifth arm of the defence workforce is really its external workforce. And you've done uh, quite a bit of analysis around that in this, uh, this part two cost of defence. Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, the government now describes uh, industry as one of the 
the fix, so one of the fundamental inputs into capability for defence, and it's becoming clear how fundamental that is. So over the last decade, the number of civilians in defence has fallen, particularly in Capability Acquisition and Sustainment Group, which is responsible for acquiring and sustaining capability. They're the ones spending the money in those huge capital and sustainment programs, but they've had less people to do it. Not surprisingly, they've had to essentially turn to the private sector to, de to deliver the people and the skills that allows defence to run those huge programs. So what kind of numbers are in that external workforce for defence? Well, um, interestingly, earlier this year, under a freedom of information request, defence put out the results of its uh, what it calls its external workforce census, and it counted up 28,000 external service providers of various kinds, whether consultants, contractors, or service providers. So that ranges from your, your fancy consultant on $2,000 a day to the people uh, preparing meals on in messes on bases to the people of, you know, pulling engine aircraft together to keep engine uh, aircraft flying. But it's about 28,000 people, which would actually make it defense's second biggest service after the army. So it's a pretty large number doing a whole range of tasks. But the ones I've really focused on in the cost of defense are, are the people who are actually doing sort of management, project management type roles. So the kinds of things that used to primarily be done in defense, but it doesn't really have the people to do anymore. So it either needs to buy in individuals to help out, or it essentially outsources the entire management of a project. And so in, you have industry people managing other industry people to deliver projects. And I sort of added up about $2 billion worth of contracts in that kind of space. So it's not just buying uh, weapons that's big business, it's actually providing the project management skills to buy those weapons. Yeah, it's also big business. Skills. And you think with that real lift in the capital program and the need to do more of that complex capital investment with Australian industry, that's going to require more of that external workforce to manage and deliver that. So the, the, I think, I the think challenge a, for local industry is also in that above the line help to defence to manage the rest of industry. I think it's, it's inevitable because defence is not going to have the internal workforce to do it. You look at the huge ramp up in the trajectory of both the capital and the sustainment budgets, the only way that's going to uh, get delivered, I think, is by defence using even more external service providers. So though that $2 billion number is also going to go up. Well, Marcus, we're out of time. Um, be happy to talk about some of the uh, other details in, in other episodes uh, of the podcast and things around uh, launching the publication. But to me, the big uh, insight coming out of your analysis is uh, if anyone is complacent about the challenge that defence has in delivering on the government's funding and the ambition in the strategic update, uh, then they should stop being complacent right now and start focusing on delivery. Oh yeah, yeah the risks around delivery are huge and it's not a problem in 10 years time, it's a problem that is around right now. You can read both parts one and two of this year's Cost of Defence on the ASPE site. Just follow the link below. Next, Brendan Nicholson and Leanne Close head of ASPE's counter-terrorism program, discussed terrorism trends throughout COVID-19 in the wake of the recent violence in France. Hello, Leanne. 
After quite a long period uh, without any terrorist attacks during the lockdown, we've had this terrible attack in Paris um, where the teacher was beheaded. What do you make of it? And, and do you believe that this is um, significant in terms of resurgence of Islamic terrorism? And what are the consequences likely to be in terms of retaliation? Thanks, Brendan. So I think that this terrorist act is absolutely abhorrent and it typifies just the extreme nature that people will go to in the name of whatever cause they're prosecuting. So the beheading of the teacher in Paris back on the 16th of October was not unusual, unfortunately, in terms of other attacks that have occurred uh, in Europe in particular, also in the US throughout the period of COVID. We've certainly seen a lessening of attacks uh, and I think that's predominantly due to the lockdowns, people not being able to travel. But we also know that there are about eighteen to 20,000 ISIL supporters still in the Iraq and Syria zones, and many of them have been online, have been inciting people to commit terrorist acts. Now, in this instance, it appears, though, that this was something where information got out about the teacher and his talking about the Charlie Hebdo caricatures, caricatures of uh, Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, and somehow this person's gotten wind of it and turned up and, and actually sought him out and beheaded him. So in some respects it's not a randomised attack in that respect and uh, obviously the French authorities are really looking at whether it's a lone actor attack or whether there are other people involved and they're interviewing a range of family and colleagues and uh, associates of this 18-year-old person now to understand was it encouraged by a particular terrorist mm -hmm. group. But we also saw... A month ago, there were was stabbings in Paris again by a Pakistani immigrant uh, in the front of the premises of Charlie Hebdo. So there's a continuing theme in France especially. In Australia, we're very lucky. We haven't seen terrorist attacks through the COVID period, but we certainly do know that there's incitement um, coming through for whether it's Islamic extremists or right-wing extremists. A lot of it at the moment is being is shown through in protest actions as opposed to terrorist-type actions. In the case of the teacher, there was a suggestion early on that um, this was a consequence of a campaign being run by a parent of one of the kids in, in a class who objected and, and ran a, an online campaign to have the teacher punished. So, and that's a potential. It, that's where the information seems to be heading now from, from the various media reports. Obviously, police and intelligence authorities will be looking actively, and that's why they've arrested, I think, around at this point 10 people to understand was he encouraged through social media or through reading this sort of campaign or were, did somebody else read this sort of material and take offence at it and, and get this person to commit the act? That's what the authorities will be certainly looking at now. They'll also be concerned about any um, copycat-type events or retaliatory actions on the part of other people against the Muslim community, particularly in France. Yeah, as you said, the lockdowns have probably limited the movements of potential terrorists. Terrorism appears to be extremely adaptive. What can you see coming out of this long period of, of global lockdowns in terms of we've got the internet, we've got radicalisation, as you mentioned. Presumably these groups aren't sitting there on their, on their hands. They'll be, they'll be planning and, and working out next steps and how to take advantage of the situation. That's exactly right. There's concerns really uh, arising around 
a variety of these groups. So we've still got Islamic extremism and, as I said, the 18 to 20,000 adherents to ISIL in the Middle East will continue to be a, a concern and as travel opens up, you know, some of them may um, travel back to their countries of origin and potentially cause um, uh, terrorist attacks and actions. And I know in Indonesia, for example, they've certainly seen some experiences where people have either come back or inspired other Indonesians to plan and formulate terrorist attacks. So they've been really concentrating on trying to interdict those and uh, before people become killed or injured. The other aspect of COVID that's really emerged and accelerated people's perspectives of whether they want to go to violent actions or violent protests has been things around some of the conspiracy theories. We're seeing some fringe groups um, believing some of the misinformation and disinformation in Australia. Predominantly, there's a the majority of that is in the USA and right-wing extremism groups who are anti-government groups or potential supporters of very much right-wing extremist movements, anti-racist, misogynist groups. Uh, we saw the militia issues and the alleged uh, kidnapping plot of a Michigan governor. So there's a whole raft of these sorts of movements that are really accelerating because of their connectivity online. Whether the um, material that's out there online is true or not, some people in the fringe, there's some real concerns that people out there may be inspired to commit terrorist actions or other violent actions. When you look at, look at the Michigan kidnap plot, that seems so extraordinary. It wouldn't even be accepted as a movie plot. But it also promotes great concern among some people that the American institutions might not actually be strong enough to, to hold the country together, particularly um, if Trump loses the election. Would you have any concerns about that or do you think it, it's so much of a minority it's not going to have a long-term effect? In the US, I don't think it's necessarily a minority, and we're seeing that in some of the um, poll data and things about the support for some of those actions. I was really shocked when I saw heavily armed militia in the Michigan Parliament building a few months ago uh, where they went in armed and they were, they'd almost taken over the whole of this government building. Uh, and then we saw the, um, the movement and the arrests of I think it's up to 13 people now, for the alleged uh, kidnapping and, and who knows what else, what other actions they were sort of planning. So it was a real shock that police, law enforcement services in those buildings and vicinity allowed these guys in with weapons. So I think that's an extreme example, but it's certainly going to be much more prevalent in the US. In Australia, I think our, our culture and our approach to these sorts of issues is different, but I also do think there are certainly some people in the margins and the fringe who could um, be incited, could really think that, you know, taking up arms is a good thing to do. The other positive about living in Australia is our firearms access and uh, access to weapons is uh, much more controlled uh, and much more difficult to get than in a place like the US where you can walk into Kmart and, and purchase an, a range of assault weapons with pretty minimal licensing requirements. The, um, the chiefs of various Australian agencies have warned that, um, the, in security terms, that the country must be on guard against um, efforts by foreign powers to infiltrate our cyber systems, um, possibly affect elections and things like that. But they also warn about right-wing terrorist attacks. Where is that coming from? Because, in the, you know, we've got used to the whole idea of terrorism being Islamist, but... Um, 
there have been a number of bombings in the United States going well back before September 11 that were actually carried out by right-wing uh, white supremacist groups. How much of a concern is that and what drives it? Uh, as you say, there have been a lot of right-wing extremist attacks over many, many decades. It goes back probably hundreds of years. I think it's been accelerated since September 11. The anti-Muslim, uh, racist-type rhetoric came out very strongly. Us going into uh, the US and, and, and supported by Australia going to Afghanistan and, and places like that and Iraq, Syria against ISIL, that's continued to accelerate um, and us and them and a really divided community, particularly in the States. As well as that, we saw the migration movements out of Middle East in particular because of all the unrest, the civil unrest and across the whole, you know, from Libya all the way through to Yemen and other places to Syria. That migration movement into Europe had a major effect on the rise of uh, right-wing rhetoric, right-wing parties coming out strongly against immigration. And again, we're seeing that great divide between communities. So that's been a continuing theme. We have to be really careful, particularly our governments, but communities as well, to think about how do we bring communities together? How do we make sure they're not divided and it's not an us and them issue? So those sorts of factors have played a part in it. And then I think Trump's a symptom of it as well. He's seeing that using the sort of language they use, beating their chests about being strong against crime, the Black Lives Matters protests obviously have played a part as well in showing divisions in the American community and really highlighting those differences between the rich and the poor, etc. and for all of the other grievances that have arisen. That, again, is sort of accelerating and encouraging these right-wing extremist groups. And America's got a very different culture to ours in terms of militia and the right to bear arms and all those other sorts of things in the Constitution that they manipulate or they put forward as the reason why they feel that they should be taking action and not leaving it to authorities that we would probably do here in Australia. Well, the end. thanks very much. Thanks, Brendan. Finally, Aspie's John Coyne talks to former Canadian Senator Vern White, a non-resident Aspie Fellow and former Police Commissioner of Ottawa, continuing the conversation on social licence and policing, focusing on Senator White's over 30 years' experience in law enforcement. Hi, welcome. My name is uh, Dr John Coyne. Uh, I'm the head of the Strategic Policing and Law Enforcement Program here at Aspie. Um, and this week I'm joined by uh, Senator Vernon White, an international fellow with Aspie, a gentleman with over 30 years of experience in law enforcement. Um, interestingly enough, most of those in some of the most remote jurisdictions in the world, in the um, Arctic Circle. And then before becoming um, a senator or a sitting senator with the Canadian government, he spent six years as the uh, police commissioner in Ottawa. Earlier this, so first off, welcome, Vern, and um, I'm really looking forward to talking to you today about social licence and policing. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, John, as always. Look, Vern, you know what, we, we've sort of seen this play out across the globe. Western Liberal democracies have taken uh, their law enforcement agencies and in desperate times, they've had desperate measures. They've introduced a range of and a raft of new laws. We've seen the sort of policing laws in terms of lockdown not too dissimilar to the old Eastern Europe bloc countries during the Cold War, you know, move on powers, the, the power to arrest someone if they don't provide ID, things like that. Now, that played out terribly over the last several months in Victoria, where we had a lockdown. And whilst there was no doubt the police officers involved were performing their duties and did an outstanding job, we saw some bad imagery. We saw 
police officers at people's front doors with military people. We saw riot police going through um, Queen Victoria markets. We saw young women being dragged out of cars. All of that was necessary. We needed the lockdown. We needed to get on top of COVID-19. This week we had a webinar and we, we spoke um, with those people. I spoke with those people and we, we were identifying, you know, the importance of social licence to policing and also about, well, social licences have been impacted here. Today what I want to do, and I'm, it's really quite basic, I want to actually, um, with all that experience, especially working with remote communities, especially working at Ottawa, which has um, some very good similarities with Canberra, I wonder as a police commissioner, as a sitting senator, if you could give us what you think, you know, the top five steps forward are for law enforcement coming out of COVID-19. Oh, thank you very much for that. And thanks for the uh, the explanation around the, to give a foundation, I guess, to the discussion, because I think one of our challenges has been in policing is that we continuously try to develop a relationship in the midst of a crisis. So I think uh, maybe if police can learn something right now from what has happened over the past seven months, and I'll look at Canada and the reaction in Canada to George Floyd as an example, is if those communities where there was a strong relationship between the community and the police, where the police were involved in relationship building before this happened, I think the impact was lessened. So I think if nothing else, now there's an opportunity for police organizations to say, have we been doing a really good job at engaging our community to ensure we're providing the service they've wanted versus the service we wanted to give them? That's, I think, uh, st uh, step one. So understanding uh, that relationship and the importance of that relationship. A second piece that continuously comes up, and I I'm always challenged by police uh, using the military in an aid to civil power, always con uh, concerned by it, not because it's not necessary at times, uh, but because the public don't understand it. They find it extremely difficult. And in fact, for most people with any historian in them, will tell you the only time they've seen it, they will actually look back to Nazi Germany, right? They'll start talking about the police yeah. and the military walking together into houses and telling people what was going to happen next. Now, I'm not suggesting that it, w it shouldn't have happened. And in fact, I have personally requested and received aid to civil power and policing in Canada. But it has to be explained to the public why that is necessary this time and that the, ex the circumstances are so extraneous that we wouldn't normally see it. If that wasn't done, the public will be challenged by that. So I think that's a, the... And look, Vern, I think... Go ahead. I was just going to pick you up on that one, Vern. I was going to say, you know, I think that's exactly what we did see with some of the media commentary here in Australia, and I know you keep an eye on it here, which is that we did start to see that, and it's funny, you know, well, I guess it's not funny, but it's uh, your point that that's exactly what we started to see. You know, people were talking, you know, jackboot Nazis and fascism, etc. cetera, um, and when really what it was was, you know, a lack of uh, resources and a need to call on the military. Yeah. No, no, and, and that's I guess that's my point, is it's absolutely necessary, Is but, but my concern always is have we done enough to make sure the public understand why it's absolutely necessary? Because it's not a role they're used to seeing, in, in a Five Eyes country, Australia, Canada, uh, UK, it's not something we typically see. We don't see those uh, anti-personnel carriers going down through the streets with police hanging off of it, even though both Canada and Australia will be challenged at times about our militarization reality. It's not the issue that uh, the public really see. They see what's happening in the U.S. So I think that's an area we have to focus on is that relationship building and understanding why it's so important. A second piece, I think, Canada and Australia can learn both the COVID issue and the dialogue around defund and post-George Floyd uh, murder uh, is a discussion around uh, standards 
and a college of policing model, uh, not to be confused with a policing college, a college of policing model that the UK has rolled out that has identified national standards for both who can be a police officer and what police organization can continue to operate in the manner they have. And I think what it does is it gives the public an understanding that as a country, we have a strategy. As a country, we have a role. And it can then move out into the things like recruiting from Indigenous, uh, I would say Australia's first people and Australia's newest people, start identifying the recruiting needs based on communities. Because both Canada and Australia for decades have been saying that our police agencies should be representative of those we serve, right? Representative of those we serve. And yet, neither of our countries have been successful at doing that. And we always have an excuse. I, I've heard it. I've probably said it that it just can't get them can't, can't get people to join in those communities. But the reality is that's not good enough for those communities. They want to see themselves in that uniform. And if they do not, it's difficult for them to understand. So I think those two areas, both a college of policing and a recruiting uh, standard or agenda that identifies try, the attempt. Uh, and, and hopefully success at being representative of those we serve would both go a long way to building that relationship. Thanks, Ben. Look, I, I guess we were very lucky here at Australia leading into this crisis. We had um, Australia's law enforcement agencies were some of the most trusted in the world. Certainly in terms of percentage points and surveys that were done, they were certainly some of the most trusted in terms of public institutions here in Australia. Um, you know, and I do hope, and I pick your point up, and I do hope that that will rebound. But, you know, and you talk about training, and this is one of the issues that I have, which is, um, you know yourself how important the beginning of your career is as a police officer. Um, we've got a number of police now, and not in all jurisdictions, but in some of the Australian jurisdictions, who've now got used to um, access to these new powers. Now, how do we bring them back from that sort of managing in a COVID crisis? How do we bring them back from that to back into this community policing and working with the community model? Well, it'd be perfect time to start implementing some of those other discussions you and I have had about building those relationships and getting the police back involved in the policing of a community versus law enforcement. Because right now, their role is law enforcement almost strictly law enforcement, right? Somebody has set out rules and they're going to follow them. And I've seen some of the videos of, as you stated, you know, uh, arresting women at a checkpoint and pulling them from a vehicle and not saying that that's not their role, but now they have to explain to the public that really our job is also in community problem solving, problem-oriented policing, developing solutions with the community for the problems the community has. Doesn't always include charges, seizures, convictions, prosecutions, but does include safer and healthier communities. So now they actually, I would argue, have a great opportunity to re-engage that community. But it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take a lot of feet moving through those communities, having those community town halls and listening sometimes to stuff that's really hard to listen to. And people are screaming, but was it necessary that you did whatever it happens to be? And accepting that because from their perspective, understanding that, look, as a police officer, 32 years, I've arrested probably 3,500 people. I can go through how many times I've had to be engaged in a violent situation to make an arrest. For the public to see that is extremely difficult. They don't understand it. It's adverse and perverse to them, right? So having to explain that is not a bad thing Don't without being defensive. It's back to the defunding dialogue. The police are hurting themselves right now, I would argue, by being defensive around what the public is really trying to ask, why are the police doing some of these things that are high risk like mental health wellness checks? Why don't we have mental health workers? We have to be frank and blunt 
and say because in 1996 when they deinstitutionalized mental the mentally ill in Australia to save money somebody gave that job to us and we've been doing it for the past 25 years not because we want to because nobody else was there to do it and you have to be frank and blunt and have that dialogue in those public forums and I do believe the public as they always have and every time I speak to a police organization in Australia I say uh, policing is one of the most and of all the countries I go to it's more loved in Australia than anywhere else I am and trusted I think so I don't think it's a lost trust but I'll tell you if things go back to normal and you're not engaging you will be lost because it's fragile and now you have the chance when this ends to get back into those communities and re-engage again I, I think it's an opportunity I don't think it's for me, every challenge is an opportunity. But this case, I truly believe it's an opportunity to re-engage the communities and build even higher and stronger than what you had before. Now, Vern, we're getting close to our time, but one thing I really, um, all that time in the Arctic Circle and then to become a um, police commissioner in a capital city. So you're, you're well suited to answer this question, which a lot of people say, you know, this community policing, this engagement thing, it works fantastic if you're the local police sergeant in a local country town, but it's hardly what a police commissioner can do in, say, you know, a, a major city or a state. And I was wondering if you, I mean, you've got first-hand experience, so I'm not trying to put you on the spot, but I, you know, I'm really interested in your perspectives on that. Yeah, you know, like people said to me, it was easy to be a community policing guy and, and a problem-oriented policing guru in a community of a thousand people. Um, and I've done it all the way up to a city of a million people where I've mobilized and used a collective impact to take control of a situation when it came to drug addiction among youth, 14 to 18 year olds. We actually moved a whole community with us with the police spearheading it and many health professionals saying, what the hell are the police doing spearheading this? But the police spearheading this raised $23 million from benefactors, donors, um, hockey teams gave us money to build drug treatment centers and engaged the youth in, in uh, 57 high schools to build a community counseling program for those youth. So I can tell you that there is no place too large to do this. You may have to build it differently when you're doing that, and you certainly have to get the groundswell from across the base of the community. Uh, but I've never been to a place where you can't do this. And I, I'm the first to say I started off in a community of 400 people doing it, but every single time I've made that engagement practice, it's been successful and it doesn't matter about the population. The truth is the public in your environment, in my environment, Canada and Australia, the public want to work with the police. They want to trust the police and they believe they have a relationship with the police already. It's not always true in some other countries. Look, Vern, thank you so much for your time. And once again, thank you for your service. I think in summing it up, you know, it's, you made it really clear. We've come from a place of high pol uh, public trust in policing. It's fragile and we have to do something about it. There's been a change. And it's something you and I have talked about in the past that we need to think strategically and put the P back into policing uh, rather than taking an enforcement role of where we are right now. Yep. Um, and I think those are important things if we're going to get public trust back on and create safe and secure and happy communities. Absolutely. And look, Australia is a strong country. It, your rebound will be uh, higher than than your fall. I'm sure of that. Um, and from a policing perspective, as difficult as it, be, uh, it will be, I know police officers in every single one of your police agencies, and I know how much they actually care about the role they have and the job they're doing. Thanks, man. I look forward to talking again soon. Take care, brother. That's all for this week's episode of Policy, Guns and Money. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on topics we've discussed today. You can tweet us at aspie underscore org. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.